Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by retired Air Force Master Sergeant Don Marie Westmoreland. Don is an author, senior HR consultant, and keynote speaker on workplace bullying and discrimination. In 2012, Dawn reported her former government agency employer to the Office of Special Counsel and the Equal Opportunity Commission for Prohibited Personal Practices and Retaliation. As a result, she experienced workplace bullying and discrimination, which wreaked havoc on her mental and physical health. Dawn worked her way through that experience and now empowers employees and employers in safe and respectful workplace environments. Don, thank you for joining me today. Oh, very wonderful to be with you, Melissa. Thank you. Start us off with where you're from originally and what led you to serve in the Air Force. I am a native Floridian. I grew up in Fort Lauderdale and then I moved to North Florida in the country and it's a little small town called Interlochen and it's the second poorest county in Florida. And years later, I asked my family, why did we move there? My dad worked Florida Power and Light and his best friend moved there. And it was country and rural and we were able to have horses. And so I grew up in the countryside, leaving a big city. And I felt like a fish out of water as a seven-year-old child. So at 20 years old, you know, I'm going to college and I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, and this is a poor community, right? And we were doing better than most. I'm thinking there's got to be something better than all this. <laughs> you know, my brother went in the Marines at 17. And I always say the Marines helped me decide that I wanted to go in the Air Force because I, I wanted more for myself. I wanted, you know, a great education. And we knew there was a bigger world out there. And I wanted to travel. So I was 20 years old. I decided to enlist in the Air Force. And it served me very well. So I went into Air Force in 1985. And, and what did your family think about that? They were not receptive at first because, except for my stepfather, who is an uh, extreme extrovert, everybody was introverts. They wanted me to stay home. They wanted me to go to college there. And, you know, they wanted the best for me. I guess they were being overprotective, maybe because I was the daughter and so I basically just announced I'm going in the Air Force. In pure shock, my stepfather cried. I was like a daughter to him. And, uh, you know, my dad was good with it. My mom came around to it. And, you know, they really loved that I went in after I got in and, and showed that I could persevere. Because the truth is, <laughs> in all sincerity, they didn't think I'd make it through basic training. <laughs> And what was basic training like for you? I'll never forget it. I was very shy, introverted. I mean, a total shock to me. And I got into, you know, basic training. I was already in great shape because I could uh, already run. The running part was nothing. The sit-ups were nothing. The part that was hard for me was the adjustment, you know, the adjustment of leaving a small quiet town, being pushed way out of my comfort zone. <laughs> right. So for the listeners, uh, Air Force basic training is in San Antonio, Texas. So you go from Florida to San Antonio, you graduate from basic training, and then where was your first duty assignment? Oh my goodness, Melissa. My first duty station was Shepherd Air Force Base, Texas. <laughs> I say that because it, I'm sorry, I have to be real. It was like the armpit of Texas. 
I went there. I mean, they had cracks in the ground. It was so hot. And I remember when I flew out there at the airport, I was watching them tag my suitcase and they put Wichita Falls, Kansas. I said, no, (laughs) I wish it's Wichita Falls, Texas. But, you know, I believe that anywhere that you go, you make the best of it if you choose. And it was awesome because I was a big sister there. I started going to college right away and I had a heck of a tan. (laughs) I'm laughing because I uh, did tech school at Shepard Air Force Base, but I was only there for 12 weeks and I was very happy to get orders out of there. I'm jealous. So what was your military job? I worked in personnel, which is also called HR. And I loved it because, you know, I'm a people person. And I, and I wanted to be able to work with people. Oh, okay. So did you at least have a fun assignment after Shepard? Oh, my gosh. I got an assignment right away to Belgium. And I'm thinking, where is Belgium? It's Central Europe, and it was fantastic. They welcomed the Americans. Um, they still remember World War II and how the Americans helped them. And it was so un-Americanized. I love that compared to places like in Germany that were, you know, just overrun by Americans. Mm-hmm. What year was that? that I went in uh, 85 and then 87. I was in Belgium for one year. Okay. So before the wall came down and it was such a different Europe than it is today, clearly. Yeah. And speaking of the wall, I was in the Pentagon. I just got to the Pentagon right after that. I was there three and a half years. It was a special duty. Whoa. A jump from Belgium to the Pentagon. <laughs> That's pretty military. From getting paid to live in Europe and then getting thrown into the deep end of all the branches? What was that like, that shift in environment? Melissa, I didn't have a car for a year, and I grew up in a small country town that only had one stoplight. I have to share that with you. So I get to Washington, D.C. area, and the very first day I go to work at the Pentagon, I totally get lost. You know, we didn't have GPS back then. This is in uh, 87, And so I miss it. I'm 45 minutes late to work thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble. And they all laugh because they said, welcome to your first day. This happens to nearly everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. One thing I I learned really quickly is if you don't have an A personality, you know, I'm talking about that. Go, 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 go. You soon have to, to learn it to fit in or you get run over. It's such a very assertive, sometimes aggressive city. Nobody looks you in the eye. Everybody's in a hurry. Oh, yeah. Well, there's so much happening there. What What was your job like? My, my day-to-day jobs. Well, one of the first things that I did at the Pentagon was in process everybody to the Pentagon in the Air Force. And I think back then, I want to guess there was six, seven, eight thousand Air Force members. I worked in classification and then I also worked in customer service. Now, I really like customer service because, you know, even though I, you know, at that time I was quite the introvert, I really am an ambivert right in the middle. And I, I, I got to meet a lot of people working in customer service. And of course, customer service is not just answer the phone and being nice and things like that. You know, I worked where we issued military ID cards, how, you know, the benefits and things like that too. I would imagine an assignment at the Pentagon would cement your decision to either stay in or get out. 
Did you ever think you'd stay in for 20 years? You know, I never went in, Melissa, to, to, to go in in 20 years. I only, <laughs> I only went in with the intention to serve four years to get a college education. Right at the four-year mark, my stepfather is, um, he's dying. And my mom says, you know, if you can come home and you know, I, I get 10 days with my stepfather, which was really great. I was close to him. And I'm like, mom, I'll get out of the Air Force. And my mom says, no, no, you won't. You're going to stay in the Air Force because there's nowhere where you can retire in 20 years and get instant money, you know, instant retirement. And she knew, she knew because she worked in the Employment Security Commission of Florida and she knew, she knew how hard it was uh, to get a job. So I always thank my mom that she had the strength to say, I'll be all right. You know, she's a strong woman. She did fine without me. And she sent me packing back to D.C. to, to reenlist. And so obviously I reenlisted, you know, every four years <laughs> until I had my 20 year mark. Oh, gotcha. So where was your next duty assignment after the Pentagon? So I went to Randolph Air Force Base and I worked in the headquarters. So I, I handled assignments. I managed assignments for the enlisted people in Air Education Training Command. Oh, you were the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper of assignments. Oh, yeah. People would do crazy things to try to get favor and to to get a, a special duty assignment and at the time time general ashy was in charge and I, I believe he retired as a two-star general and he had this policy first come first serve and he had no tolerance um for abuse you know of anybody abusing the policies yeah i remember when it was time to do a dream sheet or anything people were always asking who knew someone stationed at Randolph who could hook you up, quote unquote, with an assignment. And um, I actually had a special duty assignment to Istanbul, Turkey, and I had to apply through the Randolph system. And in the vein of special duty assignments, although it wasn't an assignment, uh, you had a really unique deployment to France. Can you talk a little bit about that and what year that was? That would have been about... I'm going to say roughly around 2003. I was there 59 days as the HR personnel for the commander. And it was mostly police officers that were there, you know. And of course, they don't call it police officers, you know, but in civilian terms. And I was only supposed to be there 90 days. I had just got married. <laughs> you know, I'd been there six weeks in southern France. It was a small uh, military base, air base in Ist, I-S-T-R-E-S, -E France, which is 45 minutes west of Marseille. So right at about the 59th day, the commander says, Don, come in and have a seat. And I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> he said, sit down. I said, okay. That's when Iraqi war kicked off. And he said, we've just been told we are frozen in place. Well, that's, you know, I tell you, Melissa, if you got to be stuck somewhere, Southern France is a freaking amazing place to be stuck. The only hard time was I was married. I just got married before I left. And I'm telling my husband, I don't know when I'll come home, you know. And uh, most of the time it was great. Most of the time, you know, we had all these safety procedures and stuff. But my gosh, you know, it wasn't like I was stuck in Iraq. And I thought, my goodness, I've had really hard times 
I mean, I, I, I paid my dues in the Air Force and I thought, what a gift if you have to be in place, stuck, locked down to be locked down in southern France. Yeah, those are the deployments you don't hear too much about, but I think they're important to hear about because um, th- there's just so many different services that people have to do to prep for a war, HR being one of them. There's so much paperwork that's involved. And I remember people uh, getting deployed to... We called it Istris, but I know that's not how the French say it, uh, to that part of France. So it's interesting to, to connect with someone who had a deployment but wasn't to the Middle East. So that was around 2003. And when did you retire from the Air Force? I retired in 2005. I had 20 years and a few months. To be quite frank, at that point, I was turning, I was 40. And my Valentine's party in the day I exited because I had a lot of leave built out was on Valentine's Day in 2005. I was ready for a new chapter, Melissa. I loved it. I wouldn't give anything um, for the world to to have lost that experience. It was a lot of growth, personal growth. Yeah, sorry to cut you off, Don, but hearing that you retired at 40, I remember going in at 19 and being told I could retire at 39. And I was like, 39? And it seemed like light years away. And now that I'm here, it's like, oh, okay, that was kind of fast. And But a lot has happened since then. So uh, <laughs> you got out two years after I did. And man, it's a different military from when we both went in. Yeah. You know, Melissa, I got out and I thought, you know, I want to have a little bit of a quieter experience and I want to have fun because, you know, if you spend time in the military, I don't care what branch, uh, it's very go, 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 very aggressive, very structured, fast paced. And I got out and I thought, my God, I have been working my tail off for 20 years. I always, you know, gave above and beyond. So I got out and I saw the opportunity to go to college. It's the only time I've ever gone to college and I didn't work for a little while. So I started earning a two-year degree in horticulture, which is actually one of my favorite degrees of the four degrees I've earned, courtesy of the Air Force. And then I got out and I thought, I'm going to do some landscape, you know, landscaping, brought in a crew, did a lot of design. It was a lot of fun for a couple of years. And then that brings in about 2007 going to 2008. As you can recall, that's when the economy started going south. I was going through a divorce, uh, a friendly divorce. I'm still great friends with my former husband. And I knew that I didn't want to be out there cutting people's grass because landscaping is a luxury. It's not a necessity. So that brought me to work into the, the veteran affairs in Asheville, the hospital. I worked there for a couple years. And then I finished out my last three years in West Asheville, which is called the MACPAC, Mid-Atlantic Consolidated Patient Accounting Center. It's the revenue part of the VA that handles all the money for the hospitals. Because sometimes people think, especially outsiders, people not in the military, they think all military get uh, free, you know, free medical care. Not true. Not true at all. Uh, the only people who get total free care are people who are 50% disabled or more, which they call concurrent receipt. So, you know, I moved to West Asheville in the VA. I want to do something a little bit different. Short story is one of the first things I see what looks like, and I perceive it to be nepotism, illegal hiring of family and friends. 
in the civilian world, that's okay. You can hire your brother, your sister. In the federal government, totally illegal. And so there's, you know, all kind of watchdog federal agencies. I reached out to um, Office Special Counsel up in D.C. They did nothing about it. And immediately I get retaliation. So I end up um, filing a disability discrimination case with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission because I am considered severely disabled. And I'm one of those people, if you met, you would never know I'm disabled because some disabilities are invisible, you know? Right. And and what year was this that you filed the lawsuit? I might have filed in 2012. I did file in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, oh, okay. So what happened after you filed? So, you know, I wanted to have a reasonable accommodation where I could work from home because my job would, you know, could do it. So I also reported what I perceived as racial discrimination because I saw that there were five black employees out of over 500 white employees. And I'm like, okay, there's something going on that's really wrong here. Well, I get really bad retaliation, you know, False charges against me, harassment, written up all the time, charged with AWOL, false AWOL, and put on 100-something days of administrative leave. And then I'm told, you got to come back. And I'm like, "Um, wait a minute, this is a hostile work environment. I don't think it's fair. You allow other people work at home. I've presented all my medical um, reasonable accommodation paperwork. This This is retaliation. Well, Melissa, during this time, weird things are happening. First thing is, I think that my phone is tapped because I'm calling. There's another whistleblower. One of those black employees was also a whistleblower, and she's my best friend today. So she's, you know, filed a racial discrimination with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I have too. And so when I call her and I call a family loved one, They can hear me. I can't hear them until I hang up and call them on the sixth time they can hear me. Ironically, she goes away the very day I settle with the veteran affairs. And so um, it's really, really hard time. I kept getting harassed. It was probably about 20 minutes, 20 minutes. I wish it was 20 minutes, about 20 months before, you know, everything formalizes where, you know, I get a formal hearing date and such like that. But in the meantime, because of long-term stress, being harassed, my paycheck has also been cut off because I won't go work at, you know, at the VA. So I lose my nice home in Asheville and I, um, you know, end up having to sell about 80% of all my possessions just just to survive because now I've lost 65% of my income and I was living at a higher standard. I mean, yes, I had my Air Force retirement pay, but I mean, I also had lost 65% of my income. So no longer can I afford the lifestyle. Oh, Don, I knew a little bit about this and looking at your website and reading about your background, but to hear it out loud, that's a lot to process. So just going back a little bit, can you give an example of the nepotism you witnessed? Yeah, I'll give you a good example, Melissa. I, when I, one of the first things I saw that really, really disturbed me is that back in the Air Force, I was a first sergeant, you know, an acting first sergeant quite a bit, not, not full time, but I filled in quite a bit, you know, and I, I'm sure you could agree with this, that the Air Force teaches you a lot about leadership and resiliency. So I see all these, and this is mostly females where I worked at, 
And I see a lot of them with advanced degrees that are applicable to the work that we do. I see a lot of them with many years of experience and training, or they have the combination of the education and the experience. Then I see people, um, family and friends, you know, I can think of a lady who was probably about my age and I'm 57 now. She had a GED and no experience and they put her in a job where she's making 90,000 something dollars a, you know a year totally clueless at how to do the job and then you have these people that should have had a fair opportunity to compete for that job and that's the problem in the government today is the nepotism and people not holding people accountable and not only people holding them accountable is that you know, the federal agencies that are supposed to evaluate, investigate, do something that they're not, you know, they're not falling through. Right. And you can see how easily that would spiral out of control. It hurts us all. Can you imagine somebody, they're just hired because they're family and friends and they are clueless. Now, I'll be the first to say there's nothing wrong with somebody having a GED. It wasn't a put down that she had a GED. The put down was that she was family and friends and she should have never been hired, not based right. off, not based off, not by those people. There is so much nepotism where I worked at last in the VA. I mean, they didn't even hide it. Some of the managers, they bragged about hiring their um, brothers and their sisters and their aunts and their uncles. I had a supervisor brag their five employees that were related to him working in the VA now, they could work in the VA in other, you know, areas, but when there's a direct influence, and anybody can look up nepotism in the federal government, but when you're in a position of power of authority and you hire a family or a friend, that's nepotism, and that is illegal, illegal and people can be held accountable for it. Mm-hmm. So I know there's more to your story with whistleblowing, and you talked a little bit about how it affected you financially and economically, but can you talk a bit more about how it affected you emotionally, physically, and with your mental health? So, uh, yes, I passed out. Um, twice I was ambulanced. I was ambulanced to the VA hospital emergency room. The second time they asked me, you know, we think you would probably feel safer. You could get rest if you were in the mental health ward. And I, I, at that point, I just didn't care about what it looked like from the outside. I'd had enough. I mean, even strong people, strong women, even women who've served 20 years in the Air Force, even women like me who grew up with seven brothers and stepbrothers, we all have a breaking point. So three days in the mental health ward, the third day they said, do you want to have a shower? And I mean, I remember going to take the shower, looking in this metal mirror at myself. And, you know, what I saw was, uh, you know, I saw something that wasn't me. You know, <laughs> I looked in the mirror, had a hay fest and I said, I'm sick of this, tired of this victimhood. And I changed, I just changed my will. I'm like, I will not be a victim anymore. You know, I had a small breakdown there. Uh, where I felt victimized. So I have an interdisciplinary uh, panel where all the psychologists, mental health people ask me questions, make sure I'm really good to go. Because I was a volunteer. I wouldn't admit it 
you know, like Baker acted and they're like, wow, she really is good to go. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I had a moment of weakness. I think everybody does. So I got out and I had to, you know, I still had quite a bit of time to wait before the hearing. Two days before the hearing, I signed um, a non-disclosure agreement with the VA. However, the thing is, is that I did not sign the part where you have to stay silent. So I'm pretty proud of that. And I was able to get a settlement based off of nothing but documentation. And that's my strong point today with my work when I teach other people how to stand up to workplace bullying and discrimination. So Melissa, I fast forward, you know, I got trained at IPAC, you know, nine months of becoming a life coach. I started my own HR consulting. I started speaking podcasting since last August of last year. I have a syndicated radio show, a weekly one on uh, WPVM LP FM 103.7, which is the voices of Asheville, North Carolina. And, you know, other things have happened. I've written books. I've got a workbook coming out, uh, Standing Up to Workplace Bullying Discrimination comes out in June. So everything just evolved from that. It's kind of like, you know, when I was in the mental health ward, I'm like, oh, this really sucks, you know, but then there's a part of me has this deep inner knowing that I'm supposed to have all this happen and then to grow from it and then to get out and help other people. And that's what I've been doing for eight years. Yeah. I'd like to talk more about your consulting business in a bit, but I wanted to ask, did you prepare yourself for some type of pushback and resistance? I'd get, I knew I'd get some pushback. I had no idea. I had no idea that, you know, somebody would, you know, I'd have phone issues like calling, you know, a loved one and calling the other, um, you know, coworker. I never thought, you know, that would happen. Never thought it'd be on administrative leave for 100 days. Never thought I'd pass out. I've never passed out in my life twice because of stress. But I do have to tell you, Melissa, though, I did most of my own uh, legal work for myself, even though I don't have the background, but I have an HR background. And most employment attorneys, um, their first year of training is in HR stuff, obviously. So I wrote up a lot of my own proof documentation, research laws, and I really spent a lot of time um, documenting everything and also challenging the director with allowing things to happen, you know, and I... I also uh, charged him, you know, with allowing it. And when we did a deposition, I brought an attorney at the very end to be my voice because by then I'd already been in the mental health and I was exhausted. And so the employment attorney was shocked when I gave him all the pop paperwork and he said, wow. And I said, I know you, you don't usually get to work with people like me. I'm sure not too often, you know, somebody's worked in HR. I had all the all the perfect documentation, references of statutes, USC codes, laws that had been broken that I thought had been broken. So it made it a lot easier. But no, did I ever think that I would lose my home? Did I ever think I would end up having to sell 80% of my possessions just to survive? I didn't have an income for over a year before I had my court date, my my EEOC um court date. Right. So you mentioned that your court date resulted in a financial settlement, 
But was there any impact in that workplace? Any change? They were not removed from their position. And I, I will never know to this day what happened. I, I've heard through the grapevine that there was some investigations. Uh, you know, that's something they never share with you. You know, looking back, I wouldn't want wish this on anybody. I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I have no regrets that I stood up to injustice and brought light to it. Because through all of this, I've learned a lot and I've been able to take that knowledge and teach other people that knowledge so that they can stand up. And I have worked with quite a few people. I do not try to make people whistleblowers. It is very dangerous. Uh, people might think that they got all the facts and everybody be behind them. But I'm telling you, one of the first things when uh, people realized the management was um, going to retaliate against me, everybody stopped talking to me. They didn't want nothing to do with me because they were fearful. And I get it. They were fearful. I mean, uh, I had an Air Force retirement at least, you know, but I was living at a much higher um, quality of life because, you know, I had, you know, retirement and a very good paying, you know, VA job. So shifting gears, you mentioned your business, Don Westmoreland Consulting, where you offer services to both employees and employers about safe and respectful workplace environments. If someone were to reach out to you for advice, what are your first steps, say for an employee? Well, one of the first steps they can take is to keep great documentation, discreetly, you know, keep records of all this. Um, because if you were to be fired and you are eligible for unemployment, you know, you want to have proof because if you apply for unemployment insurance, you know, if you qualify for it, that company or that federal agency can challenge it and keep that, try to keep that person from getting unemployment, even though each paycheck, you know, 3% of your paycheck, roughly give or take, comes out for unemployment and then the employer pays the rest. But really keep good records. Physical exercise, I don't care if it's simple walking, uh, you need a good support system because it can be painful, it can be costly, and it can affect your health. And, you know, there are many great attorneys out there, employment attorneys out there that will do a consultation to find out, is it bullying, which is not illegal, or is it discrimination, a protected class covered by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission? And the thing is, is sometimes bullying seems like discrimination, but it's good to get clarity, you know, if your rights are being violated. And I can't tell you how many times, Melissa, people called me hysterical. And I remind them very calmly, I'm very empathetic to your needs. I can give you the HR answers. I can give you coaching answers. I can give you sound advice on the steps to go, whether it's bullying, you know, or if you need to, you know, apply for the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, you know, to report what you perceive as discrimination. I can navigate people through um, the EEOC process from an HR perspective. Again, you know, but people all the time ask me legal questions and I can't, I can't speak legal. I can't practice it. So it's really important that they might need, I call it a team, Melissa. They, they may need, um, to be able to get counseling, okay? Because it's hard. It's hard when you're a, a good person, you're a great worker. There's all kind of stats out there that the people who get bullied a lot are often people who want to get along. They're great workers. And then all of a sudden, 
all of a sudden you get attacked and you're thinking, what's wrong with me? You know, and you start doubting yourself. And then the chronic stress, I mean, if it goes on for a long time, you know, they may need a counselor. They may need a mental health professional to work through and process the mental health stuff. So you mentioned earlier that you were a very quiet, shy, reserved person. Where did you gain the confidence to stand up for yourself? And how did you cultivate that? Oh, God, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I went in the Air Force. You know, I just turned 21, like I said, with a lot of, you know, college underneath my belt. And I decided to stay enlisted because it served me well and I liked it. I did not want to be an officer. Um, I didn't think that was a good fit for me. And all these opportunities and experiences in the Air Force helped shape me, helped me become more resilient, more assertive, and taught me about leadership. Mm -hmm. Well, that leads into my final question. Uh, If a young woman were to come up to you today and say she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her? I would tell her to check each and every one of the branches of service because they all have different mission. You know, the Air Force is the most civilian-like. I am very happy that's the route I went. I would also, you know, tell them to score high on the ASVAB. And one thing I learned because I was an Air Force recruiter in South Dakota is don't let anybody push you into a job that you don't want because you could be in that job for six weeks and take your time. Don't rush into it. It's a serious commitment, but an honorable one and one I'm very glad I did. Don, thank you so much for sharing your time with me today and for being so open about your experiences. Oh, Melissa, thank you. How fun. And thank you for listening. Don Westmerlin Consulting, helping employees and employers support safe and respectful work environments. Learn more at WorkplaceBullyingSupport.com. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option 1, or visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. 